How you doing everybody? Welcome to another episode of Views from the Arch. As always, I'm your lovely host, Delvon, and today we have a pretty good guest. How you doing everybody? Welcome to another episode of Views from the Arch. As always, I'm your lovely host, Delvon, and today we have a pretty good guest. Okay, everybody, how are you doing? And as I promised, we do have a guest today, and our guest will be J.D. Mass. And J.D. Mass is an individual that uh, I have been conversing with online. J.D. is a, um, in general, an activist and an individual who stands against, you know, inequality and the kind of racial inequality that we've been seeing over the past few months in the current movement. And JD is an individual um, who is a he's a person who I would say after conversing with him is seeking more justice and more equality in our current system and an individual that I thought would be good for today's episode. JD, does that sound about right? Yes, thank you. No problem at all. So, JD, uh, briefly, can you kind of tell me how you kind of got involved with the uh, act with the uh, you know, the BLM movement and kind of activism as it is today? So I was kind of raised into this. Um, my uh, parents intentionally raised me in to share spaces with, uh, with melanated people, with um, blacks and other races. Uh, I was born in Philly, but came to St. Louis when I was four. And everything from, you know, the daycare I spent time with in Philly to uh, us moving to University City and me growing up next to my best friend's family who took me in, um, put me in a lot of space that, uh, that was mostly black. And so I felt mostly comfortable in those spaces, very mm-hmm. welcomed in those spaces, and grew up with the majority of my friends being um, African-American or what I would call it, Aboriginal and melanated people. Um, and so going through life, experiencing life with them, um, I saw and experienced a lot of racism towards us. Um, and whether it was in my family and their reaction to me having black friends to, you know, us walking down the street and interacting with police or other individuals or, you know, dealing with people at stores, there was constant reminders of racism throughout. And I wanted to know why I wanted to know an understanding of the psychology behind it. Um, And, you know, the emotions and intentions behind racism. Uh, And so that kind of put me on my journey. I also wanted to, you know, make change and and impact change. And so I've been on a journey uh, to try and do so. And I'm still on that journey um, as best I can. So that's sort of the general uh, reason why I'm involved. Okay, that's... uh... 
That's actually a, a much different reason than I thought. <laughs> so that, that's actually a very interesting upbringing um, because, you know, a, a lot of people just, you know, they kind of give you the, the stereotypical answer of, you know, well, it's not right. And, you know, if I had to do something, but, you know, you, it's very interesting. You in general just kind of grew up in those neighborhoods and kind of just grew up around, um, you know, in the black community. So, that's a that's actually a new take to look at it through, and so that was actually a pretty interesting uh, way to put it. So I, I thank you for that. So jumping into my next question, so JD, what does BLM, what is BLM to you, and what should it mean to everyone else in society in general? So I think there's two two things here, right? There's Black Lives Matter, the organization, the, the the um, phrase that we that we use as a way to generalize, you know, the racial justice movement now. Um, and then there's, you know, the actual words "Black Lives Matter." And so, from from the organization standpoint, um, it means <clears throat> that there's a home that there's a phrase that everybody can understand and, and start to identify with whether you identify for or against it. Um, there's something specific that you can, um, that you can identify to judging on how you want to be involved in or against racial justice and equity. And so, I'm, I don't have a relationship with BLM St. Louis. I've been back here two years. I lived in LA for 15 years. Um, I did have some ties with BLM LA uh, through an organization called White People for Black Lives. And, um, and so uh, I know that um, from an organizational standpoint, I align with a lot of the ideology um, uh, there. As far as the actual saying itself, <clears throat> for me, and when I go into white anti-racism spaces, it's almost not enough. And I say this from just the terms themselves, like, right, we matter is not enough. Uh, black lives are valuable, and they have been valuable for since the beginning of this country and um black culture is valuable and we usurp it and we we take it as american when we think it's good and it's we see the power of it and you know and then so uh we don't acknowledge that this is black culture that that we've termed american culture right we don't want to give that power as part of this whole kind of racial justice movement so when I go into these spaces, it's about trying to help see the, the actual value in it. But yes, as an organization, I understand, you know, creating a term that is that people can get behind. that's catchy enough that, you know, um, so uh, Black Lives Matter from an organizational standpoint, I'm all for what they're about and supporting that and really helping uh, other low melanated people um, see the value in it and therefore the thoughts around the changes that need to happen 
don't become so threatening or so or looked at as a cost because um, there's value there. Right. Um, so, and as we've kind of seen the movement pick up, and you know, we've seen a lot of uh, the BLM uh, movement gain a lot of steam. You know, we've seen it move from kind of like just these words on paper to an actual physical uh, organization, you know, with, that's become actually pretty organized and methodical in its approach uh, to kind of tackling some of the issues that we have at hand. And it's actually become an organization that I think has become rather organized in how it uh, does its protest. So my next question for you is, do you think that people can disagree with BLM as an organization and an entity, but not as a belief. So can people believe, you know, Black Lives Matter? Like if I put on a piece of paper, that personal circle, yes, but then still kind of disagree with some of the things that BLM says or some of the things that BLM may do. Do you think that that is possible? Because I know I've seen that conflict uh, kind of going on online in some spaces and I see that people say you can, people say you can't. I'm just kind of curious on what your opinion is on that. So, one, I'm all for, uh, uh, a, um, let's see, differences, right? So, mm-hmm. absolutely, I would say, as a direct answer to your question, absolutely, disagreement should not only be um, a part of it, it should be a welcomed part of, of uh, the movement, right? So that not from a disagreement standpoint, from an anti perspective, but you can disagree or have differences in your approach, right? We can, and, and not be this, and that shouldn't be discouraged or welcomed. Like everybody, even in Black Lives Matter or in any organization is going to not going to be exactly the same as anyone else. So these differences, as we're starting to look at really, um, culturally including diverse perspectives it's not just about you know uh diverse looks and and whatnot so um from that standpoint absolutely but from the core beliefs of of um uh what black lives matter is about uh i think we need to analyze kind of a why um, and, uh, and, you know, what, and what background is someone coming from when you're saying disagree, but sure, you can still be for black lives because you can experience different black lives than, you know, than, right. So there's going to be different black lives living in and going to Parkway school district than there would be possibly going to, you know, Sumner school district, or there's going to just be a different experience no matter where you are. Right. And so, um, absolutely. I think you can, and you can have a disagreement to some of those factors. If you disagree with the majority of the idea of black lives matter, then you're, anti that and so that's you know against it but um there should be plenty of room for differences amongst any of those policies or how how we get to our final goals right okay um 
And then for some of those people who might not kind of uh, be with it, as we might say, uh, what do you say about those who aren't with the movement? And, you know, these, you know, I know that a lot of people come in kind of different forms. I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen people online be like, hey, I'm not going to get involved with this. I know a lot of people kind of see it as maybe like this argument or, hey, I'm not going to get involved in, you know, uh, this whole movement or, and especially I know I've seen online, there's becoming especially uh, a divide between, you know, the blue lives slash all lives people and the BLM slash activist people. So what kind of, what, what, you know, what do you say about, or to the people who kind of aren't with the movement? Do you think this will be a wrong side of history moment or what's your kind of what's your opinion on that? Uh, so to me, that's a loaded question because. Oh, I'm sorry. Why, right. And so, <laughs> I apologize for um, that then. No, you're fine. That's, uh, I appreciate it, actually. Um, so, right. So you could be raised to be racist. Mm-hmm. Um, you could be raised to. So therefore, BLM, uh, the way you're getting your information about them the lack of experience you've had or the types of experience you've had with black folks um, will be coming from a certain perspective that already puts you in an anti uh, um, black racism kind of approach to it. Right. And so that's one way Um, there's a lot of people who are, who want to be for it and yet still don't even understand their own racism or racist or even not even racist, but wanting to maintain their own privilege um, or wanting to be white saviors and still coming in and not really understanding uh, um, how to, how to get to where we want to go. And, uh, so there you can, you know, you can be for so many reasons, like, um, you could be fearful, right. Uh, of what black lives are about because of what the, the way the media has portrayed you and you haven't gotten these experiences. You can be fearful of, um, you know, of wanting to, say the right thing or do the right thing. And, and at this moment, right, that becomes so important. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm often found in a space like that, right, where, and I'm mostly fearful of, of my white folks and how they react uh, to this space. But um, when, if you don't understand the why and what your intentions are, and if you have a lack of experience of, interacting with black folks even if you start to read all the books in the world about anti-racism and whatnot until you go in and see how you show up um you don't really you're bound to make mistakes or you don't really know what you know another group of people are thinking or another person is thinking and so um what, how I would approach it is to really kind of understand the why. And I think that when you get to that point, a lot of us as low melanated people, we don't even understand that a lot of our anger 
towards any group stems from a culture that we developed. So it would really be an anger towards us if we understood it, right? So if you're if you're pro uh, Trump and you're pro this and you know and and um, the problems that you see typically were created by white folks and white leadership. But we don't see it that way because we've been taught to blame, you know, others. We've been taught to through the media. You know, if you listen to some of our characters on on the media, um, they will teach to be threatened and feel threatened by black folks. They'll teach that these are violent, you know, that there's violence in the black community and it's all stemmed by their own, you know, and um culture and uh and so we've been also taught to deny so much about ourselves and our truth of our reality because we've been taught to ignore it we've been taught to come into the world thinking arrogantly that we are the best we we use the language of the greatest country all the time and things of that nature and and we do it in in a way that makes us not even have to learn about other cultures. Um, and so there's so much that goes into why you would even be against this movement. And it's, that's why I go back to value, right? So if you don't value something, then you don't even, then anything about it can either become a threat or a cost in your mind. Um, and so I think that's, it's a really loaded question because of the why. What is the reason? If you grew up in rural America, you your own experience with black folks is through sports or through entertainment um, that you see from afar and you don't get to experience this. If you grow up in suburban America and you still, you get a little more interaction, but the interaction is still in your space, right? If you got your black friends, or whatever, so you can check that off your checklist. But your black friends and you interact in white spaces only, then you still don't even know the value of black family, black culture, um, right? And you don't get to really even see and experience how black folks feel about your race uh, either. So, um, so there's just so much to as to why someone would be against that movement right no no that uh that makes sense and actually um i'm really you actually explained that very well so um sorry that that question came in a little a little hard um so there was there were a couple things you did mention that i wanted to kind of ask you so you mentioned a couple times cost do you think that for some people this has kind of become like a cost effectiveness equation like People, like some people are kind of like, what am I gaining? What am I losing? Kind of uh, conversation, you know, with themselves. Exactly. So I'm, I'm all, all, when I go into these spaces, my biggest uh, push is for an idea of reparations, mm-hmm. right? I don't want to define that. I'm not the one that's been harmed. So I can't tell you what, uh, what is needed, but I do know that reparations is needed because repair is the is the root word of reparations, right? And so, when I speak of of cost, 
first thing when I start speaking of reparations is we start thinking, oh my goodness, how much money is that going to cost? Who's going to pay for it? Where is it going to come from? Yeah, I have seen that. I have seen that. And, uh, and that's not the right question. If you're not, if you're only going to stop there because we spend money all the time. That's what we're about. (laughs) When you walk out of the door every day, your expectation is to spend some money, whether it's on gasoline to get you where you need to go, or you're going to a store, or you're going to, you know, you're going to spend money, right? And so um, if you're spending money on your bills at home, your only thought is not about that cost. It is about also what do those bills provide me? Oh, they provide me electricity. They provide me warmth through gas. They provide me an ability to cook. They provide me all of these um, things. And so if we're going to look at, at any kind of cost of repairing a situation, then how we, you know, value what's on the other side, what does that look like? It's not just valuing black lives, but what does a a life where we don't have certain level of targeted poverty looks like where, what does an interaction with other cultures really look like and how valuable would that be to us? And we've been taught not to know that, right? So we've, and not even to know that we don't know it. We've just been taught that America's great. Look at these founding fathers, look at their white skin, their white faces, and they form the greatest country on this earth. And so inherently we begin with pledging our allegiance to this flag and and you know and without question we just do that from the beginning and so we don't get to learn how to appreciate and how to value others and therefore it makes it very difficult having a conversation around this because now we're only seeing costs but that's because we don't know the value. We know the value of electricity. We know the value of clothing and food and, and entertainment when we go outside. We know those values and we have no problem. We, we might, you know, uh, complain about it. Um, uh, but we know that there's value. We don't know the value of justice. We don't know the value of repair in this situation. Okay. No, that that was a uh, that was actually pre- that was actually very well explained. Thank you. Uh, all right, everybody. So very quickly, we're gonna take a very short break, and we're gonna get a message from our uh, sponsor, and we'll be right back. Hello, everybody. I know you know me, but I'm gonna tell you again. I'm your phenomenal host, Delvon. Let's talk about somebody. Let's talk about Anchor. Listen, I use Anchor for views from the arch. I've had a previous podcast. I used Anchor on that podcast. I think Anchor is a phenomenal website to use if you're a starting podcaster and you want to get your voice out there. They will help you. They will push your podcast out to places like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I think if you're an individual who wants to start a podcast, please consider using Anchor. Anchor is a great website. Simple, easy, and quick to use. Okay, so now we are back and we are still having a conversation with uh, JD. So JD, let me ask you a question. So I've seen personally as we've kind of, um, you know, been in this general uh, 
how would I put it? Kind of a season of protest. Um, So I've seen by the media a lot of things that have been kind of perpetuated as far as stereotypes with uh, within the black community. So do you know, in your opinion, do you think that the media actually has a very, you know, big part in driving power and how people view black people? You know, the fact that when you look at the news, everything violent, there's a black face next to it, you know, and through that, you know, I know you also mentioned racism. Do you think that people are kind? Do you think people kind of develop accidental racism? You know, especially people in more rural communities. You know, who maybe don't. You know, because like in rural Missouri, you might not have, you know, any black people in your town. So the only black people you're being exposed to are those black people that you're seeing on the news. But unfortunately, those black people are being painted in robberies. They're being painted in, you know, rapes. They're being painted with this such negative light, you know, do you think that the media is kind of a driving power sometimes behind the negative aspects of how people view the black community? Absolutely. It's one of the pillars of, of, uh, of control, right? So if you can control land, you can control resources, then you can, if you can control education, you can control minds. And if you can control media, you can control minds. And so, um, and finance, right? So media, for sure, without a doubt, plays a very powerful role. <clears throat> and from television programming types and what's allowed as far as, um, you know, how uh, images are portrayed, what type of storylines are portrayed, what type, you know, if you have control over what can be put out, you um, you can create a narrative that has influence on people, right? And so media, for sure, for one of my uh, most frustrating things with media is, and I, this is one place where I agree with terminology of, uh, of Donald Trump, but I still think he's a despicable man, but um, uh, I agree with terminology at, at, in many places, right? And fake news is one of them. Um, and the reason why, and, and, and it goes across the board from my, you know, quote unquote liberal folks to the uh, conservative to the radical to whatever you call the Fox News people or whatever. Um, but it's, it's always a one-sided picture that doesn't place you into context one because there's a lot of of uh there's a limited amount of time and a lot of information that people are trying to get so i'll say something from a liberal standpoint right that we we talk about um and i'll use the example of when the the caravans were coming up from from Honduras through Mexico to come and in, into the nation and you you get one perspective of how horrible these people were they were you know killers and rapists and all of this and then on the other hand you get a perspective of no these people are refugees and 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 you know they're they're just seeking some solitude from the fact that they're in an oppressed place well saying that isn't enough because the United States government has historically and, and armed forces have historically helped put in 
leaders of places that we then try and turn around and say, well, look at how horrible they treat their people. You wouldn't want to live in Honduras. It's a, uh, you know, it's a horrible place to live. And so, of course, you would want refugees and we should we should be willing and taking them in and this, that, and the other. But if we're not speaking the whole story, then that's fake. Right. And so that's one perspective. The other thing is, I agree with you completely. The the way we use black faces versus white faces, white faces get put on the news most often as a victim or as a hero. Black faces get put on the news as the uh, violent type, right, or the criminal. Yeah, and, and it, you know, I think the way I kind of see most black faces and, um, you know, I've, I've made this argument before, um, or, you know, black faces are seen as thugs, right? And... Mm-hmm. I saw this a lot when we had this really weird uh, phase in American society with mass shootings. I don't know what was going on, but we went through a really, really weird period with mass shootings. And all a lot of those individuals were seen as mentally ill, right? Right. And for me, I was like, well, you know, be that as it may, that has not been proven until that's proven. No, they're criminals, right? They're They've right. committed acts of violence. They're criminals. The same way you would say, you know, a, you know, a black man who shot somebody, you wouldn't say he's mentally ill. The news would say, you know, thug or, you right. know, you know, a uh, suspect or offender. You know, we, we use those harsher criminalizing words, you know, mentally ill sounds so it sounds just so cuddly like, oh, he's mentally ill. That, that's sad. Yeah. But, you know, right, it, it gives them a built-in excuse. Exactly. You know, right. Before they've even had to stand trial, you know, I, and I see that a lot more black faces have to prove. We have to prove that we're mentally ill. We don't, you know, the news doesn't give the mental illness. They, we have to prove the mental illness. And a lot of times you don't even hear the follow-up to the case. You know, they're like, oh, black man shoots somebody in St. Louis. And in other news, and it's like, well, no, hold on. <laughs> And it's done to purposely create an image that goes back to COINTELPRO um, days and even before that of creating this black, violent, you know, image where it's really a uh, projection um, of our own internal white violence because our violence has historically been initiated by us not as a retaliatory or not as a suppress uh, not as a oppressed um feelings or oppressed kind of nature but from a suppressed feelings and the difference to, is that we suppress our own feelings and then we we have to create this image of what white you know perfection looks like and being a white you know superior race looks like and then we're when we act out on these suppressed feelings because we never address them, then we become these mass shooters. We become these, you know, these dictator types, these oppressor types. Um, and so, but we control the media so we don't get painted in that perspective. And that's the real harm to, to what you were saying, right? Not only is it a painted as a mental illness, well, white supremacy culture is a mental illness, if you really want to get down to it to me. Um, and, uh, and yet the 
the actions that we've painted. Look at the amount of violence that's in the black community. Look at this, that, and the other. Well, if you're not putting that into context with the amount of harm that was intentional to this, then you then you're just using it to create a a picture and a perspective to give people an, a feeling that they understand uh, what the black community is about, what black culture is about. And so I don't have to experience it. I don't want to go into North St. Louis. It's scary over there. Well, guess who it's going to be the scariest for if a white person shows up in, in North St. Louis? North St. Louis community is going to be like, oh, I hope they get out of here alive because if somebody comes up hurt and dead, it don't even matter who did it. If somebody's going to jail, right? Like, um, we don't even understand how much, uh, how much violence, how much violent we are versus, um, and how much we project that on others versus the context of black on black crime, which we would call, or black violence in general, right? It's, it's just to put that out there. Whereas if we looked at it, there's no, very few, I won't say no, but it's an exception to the rule that there's black mass shooters. There's, it is the rule that there are white mass shooters and we need to take that into consideration. And we don't because the media perpetuates a violence of a group of people that have been violated in every aspect of their life and never turned to revenge blanketly. There's a revenge. If you do some harm to me and I know you did it, I might come after you for revenge. But there's no blanket revenge with, okay, somebody uh, black did this. I mean, somebody white did this to me. I'm just going to shoot the next white person. You might feel that way just as a feeling, but there's there's typically no action of revenge that way. But we don't paint that picture. We You have to think above and beyond. You have to dig deeper within yourself to even understand that. And most of us haven't been trained to dig deeper within ourselves. Right. Okay. Um so kind of moving forward, so kind of switching gears a little bit, um, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about law enforcement. Um, so there's been two different movements. One is gained more traction, I've realized, and the other, um, you know, the first movement I've, I've kind of noticed is uh, defund the police movement. Um, and then I know for a minute I was kind of seeing uh, dismantle the police movement. Uh, I don't know how much credibility that one was getting, but you know, do you think that we should either dismantle or defund the police? And what does that mean and kind of look like for you? All right. I love the question. Um, so uh, it is loaded because it has to have context. Right. It has to have an approach, right, that is that is part of a greater system. It just can't be dealt with within this system in and of itself as it is status quo. So um, uh, defunding the police, I understand the term to me was used just to kind of spark conversation uh, because defunding the police leaves it open for anybody to attack it right it sounds like you want things to be the same and you want to just take away 
police officers and take away the money from the police and just, you know, and just not have police so you can have everybody running wild and, and, and whatnot. And that's an easy way to attack it. Um, but it's really about how we allocate our funds. We do not value um, prevention in our society at all because we're a capitalistic society and capitalism makes you think of money before humanity, right? And not that I'm pressing socialism or communism in this um, platform or in general, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely pro-humanity. But socialism and communism both have terms at the base of those words that have some type of human interaction in there, right? Social. Social is interaction between humans. Community. Communism. Communism. Interaction between humans. Capitalism is an inter is a relationship to a medium of exchange. So if that's our first thought and how we deal with things, then prevention is not a valued uh, aspect of that culture. So when I when I look at defunding the police or even dismantling it, however you want to look at it, what is the need for the police? is part of a punitive system, for, which is reactive, versus a preventative system, which would be investment into infrastructure, into opportunities, into, uh, you know, um, entrepreneurialism and education and all of these things and that provide reasons that we don't even, that don't lead to crime, so that we wouldn't need the police as much to to be part of such a punitive system, but we've, but there's not money in that, right? There's not money in eating healthy and avoiding the doctor or, or doctors even learning how to be nutritionalists first so that we, they coach us on how to live so that we don't get these diseases. There's much more money in the cure and in the, and in the surgeries and in the dealing with the, um, the result of something versus uh, looking at the cause and therefore the effect and saying what kind of effects do we really want? What does society look like if our neighbors are part of the police system, right? Where they come out and see us and go, hey, you look like you're in an upset mood. Why don't we talk about this before you go and react to whatever you're reacting to, right? And then all of a sudden now there's a, an interaction between people that may stop something from happening, calming someone down, stopping some type of domestic violence or whatever it is. Because at the end of the day, nine times out of 10, we're not calling the police to prevent something. We're calling the police because something already happened. And now we want some type of justice in the sense of solving the crime and, and punishing someone for doing harm. But in, so defunding in, is a, to me, is a re reallocation of how we invest our monies in our society. Okay. Um, so what do you say to people who kind of, I know the, the gen, some of the argument is, well, you know, shouldn't we actually fund them more so they have better training? And then, you know, I know a lot of people say, well, you know, shouldn't we actually have more police? So you know, I know an argument that I've kind of been noticing more is, um, you know, people in general kind of think that um, the, 
like if you have more police, they can be more preventative by kind of observing um, and patrolling more to be able to kind of uh, catch the crime before it happens kind of thing. You know, kind of what is your take on those kind of arguments? That the money is better served uh, put into um, programs uh, and into care and into how we look at health um, that would lead us to not even make criminal-like decisions or harm-causing decisions where we would be focused more on our on on our own selves and our own abilities to live a life that we want that we wouldn't be acting out to cause harm we wouldn't be looking for ways to commit crimes we wouldn't be reacting in these ways so for instance if you're there's this uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Um, that was created by uh, a psychologist, uh, psychiatrist, or whatever, somebody that studied psychology um, uh, that speaks about if you're if you can't breathe, nothing else matters at the moment, right? And I'm not, and not just talking about from a George Floyd standpoint, but seriously, if you can't breathe, you don't even care about what your next meal looks like. You got to at least get that next breath. If you can't, you know, then it's drinking some kind of liquid because you got to have that to live. Then it's eating. So if, if you can't even, you don't even know when your meals are coming from, then what those man-made laws that we run by and and whatnot they don't matter to you so there's a potential crime to be had just from someone that needs to eat a meal so the investment then goes through you know if you don't feel safe how do you react if you feel harmed how do you react so how much investment can we do into creating a safe more exciting life fulfilled community that therefore the need of policing becomes less because it's self-policed because you're avoiding some of those things two you have people that go to school if you're just dealing from it from a reactive standpoint in our society as general you have people that go to school for many many years to study psychology many many years to study sociology and those people could be included they're there could be some of that budget allocated to those folks to help us design better social structures, better um, uh, uh, and, address, and address mental illness or whatever that starts to lead to some of these issues. There was a something done, a, a, uh, I don't know, project for lack of a better word, um, uh, to see how you go into a uh, in Philadelphia where three different neighborhoods of similar um, economic background, um, and one of them did nothing to change the the 
the the environment. Um, one of them uh, did small amounts to change the environment, meaning like planting things, you know, fixing the streets, things of that nature. And the other really did beautification of that environment and the mental health of the beautiful of the uh, area that was chosen to have their area beautified. And like, um, I don't even know if that's the word, but uh that was, you know, enhanced through landscaping and other um, <clears throat> and infrastructure change and, you know, repairing the streets and, and just making it a more beautiful place when you walk out your door, that mental health changed, right? If you have access to good, healthy food, that changes. So the idea to me of, of investing in training, sure, we can. We don't need as much military investment in the policing if and we can reallocate those funds towards investment in training. But there are also people that have gone through years of training to be in these positions to deal with mental health, years of training to be in positions to deal with societal change and, and sociology and structures and programming um, that's going to help give other options to people, if, you know, and so if I have something to live for, then I, if I, the more I have to live for and the more I can see that as an option to live for, then the less destructive things I'll be focused on. So that's my perspective from that. I don't know if I answered directly your question. No, 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 no. I think you answered just fine. Um, so, and then kind of my, my last uh, question on this. So for, you know, what is something you might or kind of think or say to the people who want to, you know, I, I, I've seen hashtag refund police, you know, which for me, I'm kind of like, well, I don't think a whole lot of departments have even been defunded. Um, but for people who say, well, why don't we just give more money to the police? That way they can, you know, but make it mandatory that they do more mental health training. They do more uh, implicit bias training. They do more of these types of trainings. Do you think that's a good idea or do you think that uh, that money should be taken and given to, you know, community based services? Much more to community based services. And the reason being is that those same human beings that could go into policing could go into those uh, organizations and still be protecting and serving the community um, that the ideas of more training for police just puts more uh, emphasis on police guiding our um, growth and development and that needs to be spread out amongst all sorts of aspects of the community from educating education in the way we create social atmospheres in school to programs that uh, people can be involved in to, to trade training to anything that gives greater opportunity and rebuilds infrastructure within the communities instead of how we police them because once again it's a reactive thing policing is a very reactive thing so if, if there's already universities that are training people in psychology that are dealing with mental illness why would police need to handle that even if they got greater training you're talking about years of training someone he went through versus adding 
some type of program of training to the police. Sure, there should be more of that, um, but uh, that and more emphasis on preventative type training, but that can come from already allocated monies towards the militarization of police um, instead of, you know, it's, it's, it goes back to the perspective and how we approach the situation. Prevention is much greater, but if you're looking for a budget from, from uh, things, you know, to increase your budget, then you need more crime. And so, no, I, I, I definitely think the investment should go towards um, towards others, not just the police, to limiting what how we use the police and how we use their how we respond to them. Investing in the human aspect of the police, not the 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 um, militarization aspect of them, and and. Um, and so, yes, the training should be there, but in general, the investment should be much more towards preventative things. If you invest in, in opportunities and education and, um, and in, uh, uh, infrastructure in these communities, and that goes from landscaping to redoing homes to repaving streets and sidewalks, then there's so much less of a need for police so okay fair enough fair enough okay everybody once again we are uh conducting an interview with jd mass who uh is an activist and and uh and a very good individual for kind of having this conversation with jd is an activist who stands against the racial inequality that we do see in today's society and that the current movement is hoping to change so we do thank JD. We're going to take a small break. And when we come back, we are going to have a couple more questions for JD. Okay, everybody. I know that on today's episode so far, we've kind of talked a lot about, you know, uh, the black community and a little bit about violence. I just really want to let everybody know that, um, you know, with violence, obviously there is a fall, whether it's through gun violence, mostly through gun violence and kind of some of the um, violence we experience here in St. Louis. So for my St. Louis based listeners or even, you know, the great St. Louis area, if you're struggling with anything that's happened to you or a loved one um, as it relates to violence uh, and especially gun violence, um, I really suggest you get in contact with the Urban League of uh, Metropolitan St. Louis Incorporated. Um, and they really do lend out very good assistance, whether it's therapeutic or, you know, the tools in which to kind of, you know, better your situation as it relates to this violence. I think that, uh, you know, when something violent happens to somebody, it it's more than just, you know, a, an effect that happens for that day. And you know, really it can affect you for a lifetime, you know? So I think that if you, if you've experienced violence and you're struggling getting over it, or you're struggling to uh, heal from that, you know, your mental health is actually really important. And something that, um, you'll find on this show, we take very important is the mental health of our society. I really would suggest calling the urban league of metropolitan St. Louis. That phone number is going to be 314-773-0700. Once again, I know you can rewind this, but I'm going to say it again. That phone number is 
773-773-0733. And like I said, if you're struggling with any type of mental health issue related to uh, violence, mostly gun violence, please get in contact with them. Do it not only for yourself, but do it for your loved ones. They don't want to see you go through any hard times or any type of suffering. So, like I said, and, you know, they're especially geared to help towards the loss of friends and family due to gun violence. And I know that can actually be the hardest, especially when it's random and um, there's no answers, right? There's no immediate answers for the why. So if you're having a hard time coping, please get in contact with them. Let's get back to our show. Okay, everybody, we are back and we are still talking with JD Mass. So, JD, I kind of want to go back to something that um, I meant to actually ask you earlier. However, it just kind of slipped my mind. Um, so, should you know? And I don't know. If you can you can take a minute to if you need to think about it, because as I know, it's uh, you've probably heard of the story and kind of heard some of the conversation around it. Are you familiar with the uh, the, the lady in St. Louis with the White Lives Matter sign and kind of that general story? No, I'm not. No? Oh, it was absolutely ridiculous. So, uh, I gotta love my people. <laughs> so, I don't even know what neighborhood uh, she's in. I knew, I know she's in a northern St. Louis neighborhood, and I guess her and her neighbor had kind of been, uh, you know, in a, like in a tiff. And she states that her neighbor, whom is, uh, whom is uh, black, was making, you know, disparaging remarks to her about her being white or about, you know, her whiteness. And so her response naturally, um, which was any reasonable person's response, was to hang a bunch of Confederate flags and then put a bunch of White Lives Matter signs. And she actually, and I don't know if she knew how strong this was. I I think she might have. I don't want to speculate. She put, um, I forget what the symbol's called. It's it's like the solid circle with a cross through it, and it, it and it had and it had white lives matter underneath. And I've only really seen that symbol really associated in with extremely, um, you know, I, I'm just gonna call it hardcore uh, white supremacy groups. I don't even think she understood, you know, that that is something that, you know, it's kind of like if you were to like put big lightning bolts. I'm like, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> um, okay. But my question to you is, do you think that racist thoughts or, um, well, actually racist actions are actually illegal, but do you think that racist thoughts should be illegal or do you think people kind of have the right to think and feel however they want as long as it doesn't manifest into, you know, harming somebody, you know, physically that is. I know, you know, some of those emotional thoughts could harm somebody emotionally, um, but do you think that people should be able to have those thoughts and should be able to have, uh, be able to voice, um, those feelings, you know, within kind of the, you know, our freedom of speech, or do you think that those are things that, you know, should be kind of acted upon as, or seen as illegal, or do you think it should just remain as like a social shunning type of action? Like, you know, if you say that we will shun you, but you won't go to jail. Right. Um, so I per- I appreciate the perspective of the question and I'm possibly going to answer it slightly different so we can continue to discuss it if I don't give you what you're looking for. But, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think people have thoughts and I 
would much rather know your thoughts and you being willing to express them so that I know where you're coming from than to not know because that suppressed thought may end up leading to an action that uh, could have been avoided if we if we at least knew and you were just able to kind of random, you know, just just spit out the the uh, anger or whatever your feelings are. So I definitely do not um, support kind of cancel culture from the standpoint of somebody has these thoughts and we suppress them as a society uh, versus how do we approach dealing with them, right? Because there are stories of people who have been involved in white supremacy culture groups, um, white nationalist groups, white hatred, you know, um, anti-black hatred groups um, that uh, that when they start to experience, usually through force um, of, of their situation, uh, a black counterpart, whether it's in prison, if they make it there or um, uh, in different scenarios where you get at a job or whatever, and you start to experience black folks, uh, it's been seen to change. So um, how we approach uh, people um, is is one uh, one aspect of it. So but I can't approach you if I don't know. So I do I do think that the thought itself, I don't know how you can make a thought illegal, but how the expression of that thought, as long as there's no harm done towards a person, then at least we can help try to address it if that becomes the goal of society to is to really correct these things, then we at least need to know who and how and why so that we can start to really heal. And that, to me, is also part of the reparations process, right? We as white folks, racism is our problem. It is our issue to deal with. It It is on us to relearn and unlearn how much harm we do in our natural lives to um, to create a better place for all of us. Um, and so uh, it is it's good to know who I think it's it's that's where I go to somewhat of a mental illness standpoint and I can go you know way back kind of to the beginning uh, ideology of it that it's not like mental illness, like you have a brain, uh, um, you know, like, uh, you know, like you had brain trauma, but it's a mental illness from a standpoint of your reacting to suppressed feelings instead of just knowing how to address the issues at hand. So to just run and start creating, you know, signs of white supremacy culture and Confederate flags and, you're just trying to express that you're afraid of what the world would look like if you don't have this privilege. And that's, I mean, that's my thought. And um, so why and what led you to that would be definitely, okay, you got into it with a black neighbor. Now what? Now all black folks are bad because I certainly know you've gotten into it with a white cousin or a, a white, you know, family member, friend or whatnot. And, and all your friends and family didn't become bad because of it. So 
where can we, um, how do we begin to approaching that? Yeah, I think it's, it's much better if it's out in the open. I oftentimes find it more easily, easier to talk to someone who's honest about their racism, even if they don't want to be called racist either, than someone who is in this anti-racism space because they just realized their privilege and now they want to save things and now they feel like, oh, I'm fixed, I got it, you know, and and don't still even understand the depth of their own racism because they're in denial of it. So, and as far as freedom of speech, the danger of freedom of speech is the freedom to lie. And so that that is the hard part. But if you're, if you're, freedom of speech um from expressing like your anger or your feelings or your even i don't care how you know wrong you are about a situation expressing that necessarily as long as we continue to dialogue then that's less harmful but the freedom of speech to be in a position of power whether it's in control of media or politics or whatever or you know you're selling a product and you have the freedom to lie about it, that's where the danger of freedom of speech is to me. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so switching gears once again, uh, this next question I understand could be loaded. Um, actually, the next two questions. One of them is actually a very simple. It's actually pretty simple. I have to ask you this to even get to the next question. Do So we're talking protest. Um mm-hmm. Do you think relative to both sides, right, both sides of the issue and both sides that have, you know, kind of clashed together, do you think that there has been uh, some violence on both sides as it relates to, the, you know, the protest or when or the clashing of these different groups? With, without a doubt, um, there's uh, and, you know, once again, it's the power to define um, is so uh, important. And um, I learned that from uh, a leader of uh, African Hebrew Israelite community um, in Israel, the the kingdom of Yah, the uh, Ben Ami, when I read his book, it was about the power to define, right? And so um, if you're in a position where you can create what, that definition of violence is, then um, then you can kind of control the narrative. So for me, violence is it starts with the thought that leads to how things, uh, how structures and systems are created, and um, so there's violence towards property. There's violence towards uh, humans. There's violence, you know, in in the way we set up a structure so that somebody uh, has to have a much harder road than others. So um, uh, I wanted to just clarify that before getting into this. So mm-hmm. the violence from the protesters' side has typically been towards property. Right. Right? Yeah. The violence on the other side has been towards the people of the protest. And, you know, I don't know, and I don't know that anybody knows or many people know much about who's actually creating that 
violence and and it certainly hasn't seemed to me to be the idea going into the protests um, for most people that are organizing the protests but there could be participants who join in who just are just angry and and acting out on on uh, uh, in violence that's a reaction though so that the pro the violence that created this reaction did break certain rules that then don't necessarily uh, excuse, but have some level of justification within the person creating the violence at that level. You've broken, as, as Trevor Noah put it, you broke the social contract. And so if your rules don't go and you're the ones that are governing these rules, then why do I need to live by the rest of your rules if you don't even value my life or the lives of people that look like me or that I care about, right? And so um, so I, I kind of understand that. I don't know good or bad. I, I really can't even judge that because if it brings forth change at the end of the day, then perfection is the journey, not the destination anyway. Um, the level of violence on the reaction side, it to me just is premeditated. I mean, not not premeditated, but pre. Uh, I mean, not 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 pre, but it's not uh, initiated by a level of by a retaliatory action, right? It's typically like, okay, these people are in the streets, these people need to get out of the streets or we they're they're disrupting our lives, which is what protest is. Um, and so we're going to take them out with a level of violence. And so I think that's a lot more harmful and uh, and it's weaker to me just in general. Um, so how we address, you know, the underlying cause of the need for protest and the cause for the need for looting and burning like you know i as much as i think donald trump is a despicable person um when he was running for uh president first in the in the um uh in the republican um uh what's that thing called primaries and all of that I was so appreciative that I didn't have to explain to so many of these quote unquote good white folks that racism still existed because he pretty much, you know, dismantled any of their feelings about that um, by his popularity of, of what he was saying. And so I felt like, you know, if we're going to really have the change we need, it wasn't going to come from the status quo. And, and Hillary was a status quo type of person. She was a lifelong politician, white, who was privileged and continued to uphold white supremacy culture, her and her husband. And um, so the change was going to have to be sparked from uh, from something more of a shock treatment. And Donald Trump was that shock treatment. Uh, but there was definitely a desire for change. So I was more welcoming of Trump from a sort of burn this whole system down and let's rebuild it from a place of of um, of humanity versus a place of of trying to control and that's what the United States was built upon wanting to control and and so um, 
I, I know I got way off topic. No, no, you're fine. That that burning, looting kind of thing to me is a is a like you know the fires in California that are going on now. These some of these natural fires that sometimes happen. It's part of the Earth's way of cleansing. Right. Rain is part of the Earth's way of cleansing. Now, we would all love a beautiful, sunny day, but that water cleansing process is is what we need. The Earth knows how to take care of itself. So some of this burning down buildings and whatnot is like, okay. at least now we're forced to start over and relook at how things um, how we build a new society now we could go very reactive to that and and build an even greater punitive structure and you know like (laughs) let's put shackles on everybody and we'll we'll tell you how to leave kind of thing and i say that metaphorically Mm -hmm. or we can say let's not get to the point where this has to happen again how do we start to interact with each other um in a much better space because the looting and burning didn't cause necessarily physical harm to anybody it caused financial harm to societies to individuals to companies but that is a a whole nother realm of of uh, i mean we print our own money so that can be rebuilt and recreated um but the physical harm of the of the towards protesters has uh is a little more concerning to me because we're not addressing the reasons why they're protesting so that it won't happen again. We're trying to scare them into never wanting to protest. Okay. That's fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so JD, you know, my final question, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of, uh, the divide and what's been kind of going on. Um, you know, in your own words, what can we do from here as a society to move past a lot of this divide and move past a lot of this polarization and just really come together and grow? You know, what is, you know, what are some of the things you think we can do to kind of grow as a society to kind of mend a lot of this, um, you know, it's either anger or angst or, you know, whatever ill emotions people are feeling. So our approach, our desires have to be for mending and healing. And we have to get out of the McDonald's approach towards that. Um, This is going to take time. And if we can learn how to enjoy the journey, right? So any type of healing, let's say you uh, are a basketball player and you are uh, in and you have a severe injury. The severe injury caused you pain, right? The first thing you need to do in in repairing that pain is to heal. You can't be told, "Hey, Lamar, I know uh, you just had your you know your your uh, you need uh, you tore your ACL and your knee, but we need you tomorrow." So. Just get over it tonight. You got tonight and get over it and come on back tomorrow. No, you have physical pain and you have to go through a process of healing that. And so we have to understand that the process of healing of all the pain that the society has 
created for so many lives that we have never addressed the real understanding of why we've created such a harm towards um, towards black community and indigenous cultures uh, and Aboriginal people that we um, we have to address even that so that we can start to reimagine what uh, this peaceful, what this desired and, and um, society is going to look like so that we can start our approach. And we have to understand that the healing process comes through, takes time, and it's going to also be painful along the way. So it, we can't run from that pain either, right? So you've here you are with this torn ACL. You need some sort of reparative reaction, some sort of reparative action for that. So now you go into surgery. So what does that, that intent of that surgery is to heal you though? It's to start that healing process. It's to make a correction there. So we have to identify where's the harm and what is the corrective measures that we need to take in order to do that. Now, after that, your, the fact that you had to cut yourself open means your your muscles and skin are going to have to heal. So now we've caused even a greater harm than what was already done in order, some more harm in order to create the healing process, right? So the saying is it gets worse before it gets better. So if we understand that, yes, as we make some changes, um, we are going to have to... Um, you know, it's going to look worse possibly before it looks better because we have to get to the other side of what those changes look like. And then the healing process, you're going to go through what's called physical therapy. And that physical therapy process is painful by anybody who has been through uh, healing from an injury. The healing process is painful and discomforting. And you have it changes the way you sleep at night. You might need a pillow under your leg or whatever kind of thing. You're going to go through changes in that healing process. And those and the way you deal with healing is still not going to be how you live your life once healed either. So we have to keep in a perspective of this is what's needed to go through this healing process. And there's going to be some painful conversations. There's going to be some, some discomfort in, you know, in how we reallocate uh, our resources. There's gonna be discomfort in going into these conversations and going into communities to help heal. If we're really going to do that, we need to have a more desegregated approach and a more uh, communal approach towards these things. How does white folks show up into these spaces? There's gonna be a lot of discomfort for us. And I deal with this quite a bit in inviting white folks to come into black community in a way that is only supportive of the black community, not in a way of trying to say, well, I know best, or here's, you know, here's how I'll show up um, instead of how can I show up? What, what can I do? How, right. You might, you know, and somebody might get it wrong and still, you know, and we got to understand that there's been, Times where injuries in the in the you've had what call it setbacks, right? So all of that um, in the approach to this need to be understood going in. This is going to be discomforting. Sometimes the healing from a scar itches at times. It you know it, it um, 
So there's all kinds of different ways that this is going to be uncomfortable as we approach it. But if we know that our goal at the end of the day is to have a desired community where we are sharing and interacting and respecting and loving and valuing each other, then this, then the going through the healing process doesn't seem so scary or so hurtful. We are welcoming some of that pain. And so as you're healing, it's going to go through that. And then once healed, it may never be like it was before, but it still may be very functional. You still may be able to get out there on that basketball court and have a great time and, and, and show and perform and be there for your team and all of those things. But we have to see that desire and work through those issues. And there's no one way. There's many ways because every society's every you know, St. Louis is going to be a different type of healing from Los Angeles, going to be a different kind of healing from even smaller, you know, Washington, Missouri to all these different places. So um, we got to experience and want to go through some of that discomfort, want to not make that decision for somebody else and allow them to guide their own uh look and just be supportive of what that looks like in the healing process um and it's it has to do with our intentions and our approach what our desires for these outcomes to be and do we value what what that desired outcome is if if i don't if you are the you know 15th guy on the bench maybe i don't desire you and be like sorry you got your knee busted up but i'm going to just replace you with somebody else who i got in the g league you know, or whatever. Um, uh, so uh, it really comes back to, to me, how we value, what we value, what is our desired outcome and our, and then how does that create an intentional approach to the healing process? Okay. I think that was pretty well said. Thank you, JD. And everybody, we're going to thank JD for coming on the show today and uh, talking with me and, you know, getting out some new information and a different way of kind of looking at things to you, the audience. Um, I really do thank JD for coming on. I think that today's conversation has actually been a very, very uh, good conversation to have. I think it's a very important conversation to have moving forward into the future that we, you know, uh, start hearing more of what, you know, each other think about these situations and what each other thinks about kind of what's going on in today's society. Cause as I always say, if we're not talking, we're not listening. So if you're not going to listen to your fellow man, how can you talk to him? You know, how do you know what the other person wants? How do you know what, you know, I don't like breaking things down in the teams, but as the quote unquote other side wants, how do you know what you want if you're not willing to listen to other people? So I thank JD a lot for coming on the show. And so JD, thank you very much for uh, coming on and talking with me today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And I agree with you a hundred percent. We need to continue the conversation and start to have that conversation help us move through the unease and fears that we have of looking at something different and, and what that, and I'm reimagining what that, is going to look like. Uh, also, if I could add to what you said, more than just listening, I want you to hear each other, right? Um, and really try to not necessarily 
say, I understand what you've been through because most of us don't. There's a whole lot of context that happens as we're listening, but that hearing allows us to, to at least be willing to believe that the person is coming from an authentic place so that we can, if we're both looking at healing and we can hear each other, then the dis, then the disagreements and the, the differences will be welcomed so that we can come to a, a place of peace and, and, and valuing each other. Very well said. Very well said. Well, thank you, JD. And hopefully we'll have you on again uh, sometime soon, or maybe we we'll dive into some more issues. Um, so until then, for my audience, thank you once again for listening to Views from the Arch. Hopefully you guys will uh, really get something out of today's uh, conversation. Thank you. Okay, everybody, that concluded today's episode uh, with J.D. Mass. You know, that was actually a very good conversation. And while me and J.D. probably didn't agree on everything, I think that's actually very important. You know, there's no need to have a handshaking contest every time you have a conversation. I think it's very important, as I stated, to feel free to have a conversation where you don't disagree or you don't agree, I mean, on everything. And, you know, listen to the other person, hear that other person's, you know, side of the story. Um, obviously, there's a lot of things I wanted to ask JD, but because of time, um, you know, I'm guessing you, my listeners, even though I sound lovely, don't want to hear this podcast for five hours. So most likely we'll have, I'm gonna try to have JD back. So we can, uh, I can really kind of delve into some more issues with him and kind of get some more questions out there for him. I think that you know, he was pretty informative. Uh, he knew kind of what he, you know, wanted to say. He was very, you know, he knew what he thought, which is always very helpful. So once again, I want to thank JD in our closing for coming on. And I think that, uh, you know, JD was, was a very good guest to have on today. But in closing, you know, once again, as I always say, share this podcast. If you know somebody who needs a new podcast, you know somebody who might you know, want a new podcast to listen to, throw them one of my episodes. Say, hey, I got a guy, you know, send them our way. Let them know. Also, feel free to, uh, on any social media site, like this podcast, share this podcast on your Facebook, your Twitter page. And as always, feel free to engage with me about about my podcast. You can always, always, always uh, contact me either on my social media sites and one of the comment links on a video or a post I make, and you know, please feel free. Uh, a lot of people have actually been getting, have actually been Snapchatting me things. Um, so my Snapchat is Savage the God ninety four. Uh, a lot of people have been sending me some pretty funny stuff on there. Um, and as always, you know, we have I have picked up some subscribers to the show um, who have gone to the support section and are showing their support. Uh, I always say, you know, your support is important to me. So please feel free to support if you wish. Um, this could be a one-time thing, can be a reoccurring thing, but just be advised that, you know, all of the revenue obtained through, through my supporters, all of that revenue is going to go towards better equipment, travel, and having on some guests who might want their uh, value uh, to be, you know, appreciated monetarily. So once again, today was a very good episode. Thank you, JD Mass, for coming on with us. And thank you, the listeners, once again, supporting this podcast. Remember, it's still COVID season. And as we're getting more into the flu season, wear your mask, 
social distance, stay safe, stay healthy, stay classy.